2: Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything.
0: Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio and I love all things tech. It is time for another classic episode of Tech Stuff. This one originally published on June 26th. 2013. That would have been my birthday. This is called the WikiLeaks story. And obviously, it's another one of those topics where I could do a full update, probably a full redo of this episode. But it's always interesting to go back and listen to how the show has evolved over the years. So let's listen to the WikiLeaks story.
2: Also, real quick, before we get into this, I do want to give a brief trigger warning. It's it's a light trigger warning, really. Um, uh, Julian Assange being um, one of the So-called founders of WikiLeaks has been brought up on some rape charges. And so there will be a um, non-graphic discussion of that later on in the podcast. Um, If that is the kind of thing that you would rather avoid hearing, then perhaps you would like to uh, skip the rest of this episode.
0: Uh, now, spoiler alert, both Lauren and myself, and, and, it, with our particular political views, feel that no one in this story really comes out being a complete hero. It's, it's, it's just, it's humans being humans, which means it's complex. It's,
2: it's complex and gets kind of messy.
0: Yeah. So we're gonna get messy. But before we get messy, let's just clear things up a little bit. Let's talk about what WikiLeaks is. Now, first of all, the name Wiki gives you this sense that it has this sort of collaborative, open, Structure that allows people to come in and add things and tweak things, not so much. They tried that early on in the the timeline of WikiLeaks, but eventually moved away from it. The name has stuck, however. Right,
2: and I think that I think that really what they wanted to do was um, uh was use was use that that easy reading format of wikis without you know and and then they decided to really close down the part where a anyone can edit it because that's bad times. Right, Um,
0: right. When you're talking about what it is WikiLeaks is trying to do. mm -hmm.
2: And uh, and be, yes, the the, the sourcing of information in order to remain um,
0: anonymous and pertinent. Yeah. Yeah. These are all things that make it, you know, if you were to just open it up for what WikiLeaks does, it would just be a mess very quickly. It also has created a lot of confusion among people who are just casually following this or have just heard about it. Who think that WikiLeaks has some sort of connection to Wikipedia. Which it does not. No, the Wikipedia and WikiLeaks are not at all related. So what is WikiLeaks? Well, it's a not-for-profit organization. And the purpose of WikiLeaks is to publish information that would uh, normally not be available to the public.
2: Right, normally normally, uh, be uh, stuff that's either been classified
0: or... Yeah, it could be trade secret stuff. It could Mm be uh, corporate... Uh, uh communications that normally would not be available to anyone outside a certain group of people within that corporation. Uh, really, it's any information that would be of public interest, but is not publicly available. Right. And in fact, WikiLeaks goes so far as to say that the organization does not want anything that's been published elsewhere. That's not the purpose for WikiLeaks. They also make pains to say that they do not solicit any kind of information or files, they accept it, but they don't solicit. Which is an important distinction they have to make, so that they for can't... for legal purposes. Yeah, because otherwise they could start getting uh, charges about being a spy, or uh, or trying to uh, bribe officials or people in who have access to to uh, classified information uh, to then share it illegally. Right, if they, if
2: they merely accept donations of information. That absolves them of of some of that responsibility, kind of technically. Yeah, and just
0: at least prints a better picture of them, right? Right. As far as it makes it more difficult to make a case against them. Mm -hmm. doesn't necessarily mean that a case would not be made against them and it wouldn't be successful. But anyway, we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves. Now, um, according to Columbia University's journalism school, I read this. There was a very long article about... WikiLeaks and its uh, association with The Guardian newspaper. Oh, right. Which Mm -hmm. is a a newspaper in the UK. Mm -hmm. And uh, in fact, there was quite a a strong relationship between the two for a while. Uh, Until
2: an event that we will discuss later.
0: Yeah, yeah, that will come important later. But according to that particular article, it said that uh, Julian Assange, who is often referred to as the, a, founder. the founder, or mm-hmm. or at the very least, the spokesperson for WikiLeaks. He's certainly the most identifiable personality associated he's, he's with kind WikiLeaks. Of, yeah,
2: a figurehead, if, if nothing else. Yeah,
0: yeah. And it, that gets complicated, too, and we'll explain that in a bit. But according to this article, he registered the domain name back in 1999. However, every other source I could find... It
2: says 2006. Six,
0: ...was the earliest that it was actually... Um, uh, registered. This is another part that makes talking about WikiLeaks challenging, in that there's a lot of misinformation about the the site itself, not just about all the shenanigans that went on both within WikiLeaks and surrounding WikiLeaks, but just. When it really got started.
2: Uh, right. And part of the problem, um, we, we should mention now is that a lot of the information out there about WikiLeaks comes from either Julian Assange himself or, um, other, other personalities that have been involved with the organization and have left it, uh, violently and bitterly. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, so all of, all of this is, uh, not necessarily, it, it's difficult to track down the exact truth.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of subjectivity here. I mean, everyone involved has their own agenda and, uh, and that course, doesn't, you know, that doesn't necessarily align with the organization's stated mission, right? Right. So this is, this is what makes this complicated. Now, what is that stated mission? Well, the whole idea here is that what WikiLeaks is trying to do is make available information that the public That, 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 you know, the organization feels the public should have access to but otherwise would not because of the, uh, the secrecy of either governmental or corporate organizations or even just other organizations in general and that, uh, it's an attempt to make these organizations more transparent.
2: Right. Uh, they, they cite the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, um, in particular Article 19, um, which which just says that, that everyone has the right to freedom, freedom of opinion and expression.
0: Right. And that they should be able to pursue information regardless of frontiers. Right. Which is kind of like saying, you know, uh, a person in, in, say, China, who otherwise might not have access to certain information, completely has the universal right to that, even if the Chinese government says they, they don't. don't. Mm-hmm. So, in other words, it's kind of this idea that everyone has this right, regardless of what your government says. Or, this is the United Nations that has the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and it's not like this is somehow legally binding for all. Right,
2: right. It's, it's a very nice idea.
0: Yeah, it's, it's an ideal, right? Mm-hmm. It's not so much legal wording, it's it's saying ideally, we would say all people have the right to these expectations, and one of them would be this right to freedom of expression. Now, depending on where you are in the world, your right to freedom of expression may be fairly generous, or mm-hmm. it might be really restrictive. In the United States, we like to think that we have the freedom of speech, but there are certain limitations. I mean, obviously if you are using that freedom of speech to inflict harm upon someone and it is completely unjustified and, you know, you, you could be taken to court for things, things like live, like libel, slander. Right. um, you know, the whole, there's the whole argument about you can't yell fire in a crowded theater because it could cause people your, your right or freedom of expression does not override someone else's right to safety, uh, safety, uh-huh. right. Or, or at least the expectation of safety. Um, and so there are a lot of complications here. But even in the United States, you know, it's fairly wide open. People will argue as to how wide open it is because of their own uh, personal views. If you go to some place like the United Kingdom, their uh, rights of free speech are are n- more narrow. Right. There are very specific laws that prevent newspapers, for example, from violating uh, secrecy agreements. So something like the Guardian had to make some really tough decisions when they got information from WikiLeaks on whether or not to publish it, because it could result in some injunctions from the government. Right. So uh, that gets really complex as well. Anyway, WikiLeaks essentially says, we don't subscribe to any of these uh, regional concepts. We subscribe to this universal concept. And that's what it's all about. And so they try to provide the material that journalists can use to tell the stories that otherwise would be untold.
2: Right. Um, Assange Assange said in one interview with Time um, that uh, this organization practices civil obedience. It tries to make the world more civil and act against abusive organizations that are pushing it in the opposite direction.
0: So it's kind of funny to call it civil obedience, considering that, uh, you know,
2: that they are directly disobeying?
0: Yes, they're being disobedient by, by very nature. But it's, it's all an argument about who has the power and responsibility. If you have a lot of, you know, as, as, uh, Uncle Ben would say, with great power comes great responsibility. <laughs> right. Now that's, that's one of those little cliche sayings, but it, there is truth to that. It's very true that if you are a governmental agency or a corporation that has a lot of power, then there is a certain expectation that you will use that power in a responsible way and not do it in such a way that you are going to violate people's rights
2: uh, right, you know at the same time, frequently information is withheld by by governments in particular because. Because of, of, of measures of national security, because they're trying to protect, um, you know, either their, their military interests or their scientific interests or, or, you know, the, the people and the research that go into making that country a safe place to be.
0: Right. So there is a very delicate balance here, right? I mean, you could argue that there are, there's certain information that's out there that it's good that it's secret because that means that the people who are doing valuable work, and it may be valuable work that in no way is violent toward any other person. It may be completely humanitarian work that their lives could be in jeopardy if that information were made public. And that is something that you know needs to be taken into consideration. Now the what WikiLeaks would say is on the other hand, you also have these instances where uh, uh, agencies or the military or a corporation are behaving in an unethical or corrupt, or illegal manner. And without this information becoming public, they can never be held accountable for that. And so if they, they, you know, this transparency gives accountability to those agencies. And in fact, they go so far as to say it's the media's role to,
2: to reveal this kind of information to the public, to, to make the public informed enough to be
0: good citizens. Right. Because this is that, that big relationship. You know, we often think of the government as being this kind of separate entity that is, uh, in some cases, we think of it as sort of that big brother Orwellian idea of this this other that dictates what we do. But in reality, at least in in I mean, you can argue to what uh, extent. Right, but
2: right. You know, there, there are definitely fringe theories about how much a, your your average citizen does or doesn't have power over.
0: Over these these things, but but, but saying that, you know, if we take democracy in the United States for what it's supposed to be, if we assume that that, in fact, is the case, then what WikiLeaks role is, is to tell uh, the public, hey, this is what your officials are up to. And if you don't approve of that, you need to be aware of it so that you can the next time voting comes around, behave in a way that that allows you to get the right people in charge, assuming, of course, that the right people are. The ones who are running for office—that's
2: that's a different political discussion. That's yeah. a whole other whole other can of worms. That's I, I, a can of I'm honestly, I'm politician probably, worms. I'm probably um,
0: coming across as really cynical. I'm actually not that cynical. I'm just aware of a lot of cynicism, so it's one of those things where you kind of dance around it anyway. Sure.
2: Well, yeah, well, and and you know the thing is that I, I read one thing about how um uh, the U.S. Information Security Oversight Office reported that um, the number of new secrets designated as such by the government, uh, rose 75% from 1996 to 2009. And so so partially what this has to do with is the way that governments are processing information and, um, and and releasing it to the public.
0: Right. and And to be fair, I mean, the Obama administration in the United States specifically said that one of its cornerstones was going to be transparency. And so in a way you can think of the media in general and WikiLeaks in particular in this case Trying to hold them accountable for that claim, saying, "You said you're going to be transparent. Uh, here are all these things that have not been reported. What is your stance on this?" Absolutely. And so, uh, I mean, you know, I can't disagree with that motivation. I think that that's very important. I think that any nation where you have a free press, that press's job to keep an eye and make sure that things are not being, uh, that people are not behaving in an unethical manner or taking advantage of a situation. And if they are, that that's reported. I think that's very important. It's a key role in journalism, and it's something that uh, some people would say has really been slipping from journalism over the last couple of decades. Right. Uh, again, that's I'm it. not a journalist, so I, I'm not going <laughs> to comment on that.
2: Well, that's that's another, you know, there, there's also a lot of ideas about out there about how um entertainment-based the journalism industry is these days. That's versus, true. Yes, you know, yeah, the whole but,
0: idea of, of the, the commercialization of journalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, anyway... WikiLeaks does have some policies that try to guide the organization and how it behaves. One of those is that that uh, they do sometimes delay or remove some details in stories in order to protect people from immediate harm,
2: um, especially um, either current victims of of harm somewhere or the whistleblowers who are reporting this information. Right,
0: and then on top of that, they also try to uh, make sure that every single leaked report that they receive, which, by the way, they've set up an electronic Dropbox. That's their preferred method of receiving information is electronically and that this Dropbox is uh, encrypted so that, again, in theory, you wouldn't be able to trace the origin of that other than being able to see that this is original source material, but it's not tied to any particular person. Right. So the electronic Dropbox is supposed to be a secure way of getting files to WikiLeaks. And they have said that they would also re- uh, receive files and or, or documents in other forms, like including through the mail. But they prefer not to, because that kind of stuff can <laughs> well, be I mean, intercepted you know, yeah, and the security's and in question. Sure, and,
2: and also, also if they have a physical mailing address, that makes it more difficult for them to uh,
0: avoid... Entanglements. Yes. All right. So anyway, they they do refer to their electronic dropbox as being the preferred method. And they say that everything they get, they use traditional investigative journalism techniques, as well as more modern technology based methods to verify that that information is, in fact, accurate and true and that it really is from a, ver- a verifiable source, right? That the documents are actually from wherever the person, the anonymous source says they're from. So if an anonymous source drops off a an enormous file that ha- is supposed to contain all these documents from the Department of Justice in the United States, for example, they would go through and try to verify that those were, in fact, DOJ Documents and right. not just someone using some logos or whatever to fabricate something.
2: Right. This is through a largely volunteer-based system. Um, they've they've reported, and again, you know, these numbers are kind of wibbly wobbly, but um, they've they've reported having up to eight hundred volunteer members, uh, m- mostly mostly journalists, I think, uh, helping yeah. helping them out with stuff like this.
0: Right. And some of those volunteers have uh, a lot of stuff to say about WikiLeaks, but again, we'll. We'll cover that probably in the second half. I think of this of this episode. So, they their policy is to verify everything to keep it secure, and then once they verified it, the next step is deciding on when to publish this information. And WikiLeaks has done. Uh Well, they've done their own journalism. They've had their own journalists write stories that were based off of the documents that they had found. Oh, that's
2: uh, I think you mentioned earlier that that part of what WikiLeaks holds very dear is that they want to publish original material. They don't want to republish. Anything right, and right. and that's and so yes so um so actually doing writing an investigation is yeah. a big part of that.
0: They also will partner with existing media outlets, although there's been sort of a contentious uh, relationship between WikiLeaks and several high-profile newspapers mm-hmm. uh, in multiple nations, and and part of that I think has to do with Assange's personal handling of situations. But anyway, uh, they, they, their goal is to have stories written about the information they have, because it's kind of like if you were to walk into a laboratory that's doing scientific experiments and you see the experiment going on. But you can't really necessarily make any meaningful conclusion based on that. You need to have the report written up where you can see what the actual methodology was, what the uh, the results were, and what the conclusions are. That's what is digestible to the average person. Same thing with these WikiLeaks reports. It's usually the raw material is something that they hand over to journalists and the journalists end up writing the stories, and then the raw material is published along with the story. So that for way, for that
2: complete transparency that they're really
0: going for, right? That way, so that
2: you can check their sources. Exactly,
0: too. exactly. Like if if Lauren reads a story, and then you know she reads one journalist's perspective on that story, and their the way that they have taken this information and then communicated it, she can then go to the the source material, read the source material, and see if her own uh, interpretation of that source material is aligned with what the journalist said because remember, no matter what, we're we're all human, so we all view things through our own kind of lens in the world, and we try and be as you know, a journalist try to be as objective as possible, or at least most people who call <laughs> themselves journalists try right. to. Right,
2: that that's the hypothetical ideal. Yeah.
0: So, uh, but it's it's you know, there's no way to ever. Truly a- attain that. Sure, know.
2: and 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 in, in some of these cases, they the uh, Assange and and other folks at WikiLeaks have admitted to uh, wanting to market some of these bigger releases uh, to, to, to really get things into the public eye. Right. I, I don't I haven't personally um, read any any ill intent to change details, but but just to bring the most important details to the forefront because they are a political organization.
0: Right. And when you look at it, you're you're talking about sometimes they're getting files that are enormous. I mean, they're talking about. Pages and pages and pages of documentation. Yeah, it was to like, sift like, through like over,
2: that, over 300,000 documents in a go.
0: That, that's, you know, obviously way too much for anyone to just wade through beginning to end and find the, the nuggets that are meaningful because a lot of this stuff has information that's not really, um, you know, important in the grand scheme of things. It might have been important for a very specific purpose, but, you know, beyond that, it doesn't really matter so much.
2: Yeah. So well, we'll mention a few examples of stuff like that a little bit later.
0: Yeah. So, they, they you know, this is this is their basic purpose and their basic approach uh, to go into more detail. We'll have to kind of look at the timeline and discuss what had happened throughout the history of uh, WikiLeaks, which, of course, is still in existence today. I don't mean to suggest that that history is over. Right. Uh, but it is.
2: It is a continuing story, but um, but most of the most of the action within WikiLeaks was going on around uh, 2010, 2011.
0: Yeah, that's when the big, big stuff was going on, although it's played a part in other stories since then. And and of course, before then, too. Hey, guys, Jonathan from 2020 here. We're going to take a quick break to thank our sponsor. Working remotely where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Apple Podcasts or wherever you get
1: your podcasts. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time-ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smoove and that was a full episode of my new podcast Straightforward, inspired by Guaranteed Straightforward Pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated AT&T Fiber live like a gig Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit slash hypergig for details.
0: All right, so we've had an overview of what WikiLeaks is, what its purpose is, what, you know, role it's it ideally would fill within the world of journalism and transparency and accountability. Let's talk a little bit about the timeline. So, it was around 2006 that WikiLeaks began to coalesce, and it was officially launched in 2007.
2: Right, uh, e- either December 2006 or early 2007.
0: Yeah, it's right around then. Anyway, yeah. The the first publications were uh, coming out in in December of 2006, but most folks just say that are right, the official launch where we had a thing was in hmm. early 2007.
2: Right. And and I and I did want to mention that this is coming on the heels of in 2005 um the commission that had been investigating the 911 uh terrorist attacks here in the United States had found that that poor information sharing was a huge failure of the government in the in the lead up to the attacks of 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 preventing this sort of thing from happening. Right. And and that that had led to internally uh, a lot of reorganization of how information is shared in between
0: different departments. Departments. Yeah, this this is something that we see in all levels of organization, where you have multiple departments and then the communication between departments, sometimes the communication within a department, tends to get bogged down by red tape. And, uh, you know, you see this all the time. If you ever read any stories about um, uh, police investigations that span multiple jurisdictions, That's always part of the story is how complicated it was to get the cooperation of one police uh, office versus right, another. Right. And if they're federal uh, investigators, then that adds another layer of complexity.
2: And, and it was it wasn't until around that time that um, I, I think that a lot of agencies had been kind of resisting going digital just because of the ease of flow of information, which isn't really considered a good thing when you're trying to keep things secret. Right. Um, and but but it was after after 2005, after that report from that commission that things started going going online.
0: And the first story that WikiLeaks partnered with uh, The Guardian on uh, was for uh, around August 31st, 2007. It was a story about the alleged corruption of Daniel Arap Mwa, the former president of Kenya. And it was a leaked report. The Kenyan government had elected to keep this report secret. And uh, someone leaked the information to WikiLeaks. WikiLeaks then approached The Guardian and The Guardian was very cautious about this kind of relationship. It was one of those things where they saw the value in what WikiLeaks was doing. WikiLeaks was setting itself up to be a completely independent safe house of information, leaked information. Uh, The idea being that, of course, anyone who would submit to it would remain anonymous. WikiLeaks would not point the finger at anybody. And that that information could then get to uh, some sort of outlet that could communicate it to the wider world. So... This was the first attempt of The Guardian and WikiLeaks to work together. From the story I read from Columbia University, it really did sound like Julian Assange was a big part of this early, early on, and that that was both uh, a good thing in the early days and turned into a complicated thing as time went on. Um, uh, from what I understand... He can he can have an effect on people uh and make them feel uh like they're not really being listened to.
2: He he's maybe. frequently described as being a very um dynamic
0: personality. That's a very generous way of putting it. Uh yeah, n- people who who have talked to him have had some pretty contentious things to say about him. Uh, I've never met the man, so I know nothing about him personally nor have I had any interactions with him, but just going from what other people said it seems like he he,
2: he, seem, he seems very intense.
0: Yeah, he can be a handful.
2: Yes. Um, uh, this uh, the WikiLeaks would later be presented with an award from Amnesty International um, on behalf of the uh, Kenyan folks who leaked this information. Mm-hmm. Um, uh,
0: no, that's one of the awards that WikiLeaks has won. WikiLeaks, of course, you know, it's it is very controversial, but there are organizations that have recognized its role in uh in in uncovering corruption and even going so far as to uh, uh giving en- enough information so that authorities could end up pursuing and correcting problems um or that people could end up going out and voting uh what would what some would call a corrupt administration out of power this is of course you know on a global scale not not uh limited to just one country uh in february of 2008 A WikiLeaks report, uh, along with The Guardian, exposed a Swiss bank called Julius Baer for money laundering. Uh, And uh, that ended up getting WikiLeaks hit with one of their first major lawsuits, which is not something unusual for the the organization. They've been hit with many of them.
2: Right. Um, Also in 2008, they uh, posted a bunch of uh, Scientology's secret membership
0: manuals. Yeah. Uh, And it's funny because there's... There are some stories that talk about how WikiLeaks expected certain things to get a lot more attention than what, they, what it actually did. And the, these manuals were – that was one of the things. They thought that uh, a lot more attention would be devoted to the Scientology manuals than what actually happened. And that's another reason why WikiLeaks was looking to partner with various newspapers around the world because they, they d- were discovering that trying to direct people to WikiLeaks – to find out about the information was tricky. Anyone who makes a website learns pretty quickly it's hard to get folks to go to your website. It is. Folks need to want to go to your website. You can't really make them go. So, uh, you know, if WikiLeaks was going to fulfill its mission in being this this, uh, depository of, of secret information that could then be used by journalists, they determined that they had to reach out to more journalists to make that happen, um, the next thing I have is November 2009. Do you have anything before that? I do not. Okay. That's when they published a comprehensive list of text pager messages that were sent during September 11th, 2001, which of course was the date of the terrorist attacks that, uh, that, that ended thousands of lives here in the United States. Um, and they were criticized for this because a lot of those text messages were uh, just simple messages from between family members or coworkers to let people know that they were all right, that they had um, managed to to stay clear of the uh, impact zones and that sort of thing. And that it, there was a real question of, is this actually newsworthy? You know, right. Is, right. The, is this is this valuable information to publish? Is this. Are, is this getting a little too voyeuristic into the personal tragedies that happened during this day?
2: And and, and there was a little bit of a question, um, and this ties back into the Scientology bit of of whether WikiLeaks was was publishing things to get attention and to be sensational, um, rather, or than to or rather than to fulfill its mission. Right, mm-hmm.
0: right, yeah, and that's that's played WikiLeaks throughout its history as well. Like the again the goal that it states seems very noble in a journalistic sense. But the behavior of at least some of the people in WikiLeaks may have has been It's not touched. always
2: uh aligned yeah, quite with that. It's okay. it
0: seemed it seemed, like you said, a little more sensationalist. And that might not have ever been the intent of the people in WikiLeaks. It just may be the impression that everyone got from the way it was handled. Sure, sure. Um, um, now um, getting back in one last little thing about these these text pager messages. Sure. Um, was that WikiLeaks said their response to the criticism of, is this actually newsworthy? Their response was, this helps create a more complete picture of what happened on that day. And I'm not, I mean, yeah, it's more complete. I just don't know that it's more relevant.
2: Sure. Sure. I, I could, I could, I could argue that one, you know, that, that, that could easily be argued either way. Yeah. But, um, yeah. but yeah, I, I did want to mention also in 2009, um, that was the year that, uh, President Obama signed the executive order requiring a whole bunch of people who hold classified, uh, status here in the states, um, to receive extra training on what actually needs classification. Mm-hmm. And, um, and also forced people who who are creating these classified documents to identify themselves on those documents.
0: And again, this is that uh, this is that effort for official transparency. Right. To say, you know, let's not just blanket whitewash everything as classified, because that just all that really does is engender a spirit of distrust in the government to say, like, what why are they hiding this? What else do they have to hide? And, uh, and of course, I mean, this is an ongoing story. It's stuff that we're finding out about now, about things like clandestine surveillance, which are th- – these are stories that are breaking as we are recording this podcast in, in uh, early June 2013. There are all these stories about – the NSA and surveillance and cell phones and things like that. Now, some might even argue that the things that happened with WikiLeaks are what kind of led to those policies, which is the antithesis of what they were supposed to be doing. I, so, I, think, that, I think
2: that there's been a lot of that actually from from I think a lot of governments have kind of cracked down on, yeah. on openness in response to this sort of thing.
0: Yeah, it's it's. You know, and some might argue they're cracking down on one side while really doubling down on the shady stuff on the other side. So it's almost like uh, the Wookiee defense. Hey, it's Chewbacca. <laughs> so um yeah, I mean, this is a complicated issue. Uh, April twenty ten. That's when Assange goes to the National Press Club in D.C. and shows a video of a two thousand seven incident. Now this is the the most probably the most notorious. WikiLeaks. Leak. Release. Yeah. yeah. Of, I mean, there have been a lot of high-profile ones, but this one is like the defining one, I think. Yeah. And this is one that showed an incident in 2007 in which uh, uh, two U.S. Apache helicopter pilots allegedly executed uh, uh, innocent people on the ground in Iraq, including two Reuters correspondents. The whole thing was caught on video, and Assange called it collateral murder that's what he named the video and again that seems very sensationalist now at the same time the the video itself really did portray a a horrific
2: act yeah and, and i mean and there's and there's full audio in it so there's this very chillingly calm discussion of everything that they're doing and um and and yeah it's it's you you can you can see i think at least 18 people uh, are killed during the course yeah, of the video. I know it was
0: at least fifteen. Yeah, and, and two of them um, were Reuters reporters. Right,
2: right. This had been a project that had been going on since March of 2010, and and had been they had received these files and uh, kind of went into a frenzy of work in Iceland, while putting them together. It was called Project B, and it was and, and they knew that it
0: was big. Yeah, they knew it was big, and and again Assange was trying to find a way to get more visibility for WikiLeaks. So part of that sensationalism was in fact intended because it was meant to to get as much press as possible.
2: Uh, but also I mean you know it, it was an absolutely pressworthy release. Yes, it I was. mean you know you you, you can't yeah it's, it was, it I mean, was, I, mean, I mean I I understand It was a legitimate
0: it was a completely legitimate story. It was mm-hmm. something that needed to be broken because it was you know it, it, people needed to be held accountable although it should be said that the military never did uh, charge those helicopter pilots with anything illegal or the official statement was essentially that the people were in an area where there was a suspected, um, uh, ambush that was going to attack U.S. forces and that the helicopter pilots acted responsibly. That's the official Line. response. Yes. So anyway, it definitely was newsworthy. Uh, the hand, again, it was the handling of it that I think was sensational, not the material itself, but that was again completely valid. Uh, in, on May 26, 2010, the Pentagon arrested U.S. Army Private Bradley Manning on charges of downloading and then leaking thousands of classified U.S. documents, including this video. And uh, uh, that's sort of been the the video and and the handling of uh, Bradley Manning and and Bradley Manning's case have been this sort of defining. Uh, element to what WikiLeaks is and the way that it's portrayed uh, in general. I mean, this story is still ongoing to this day.
2: Uh, right. I believe that the trial for Manning is going on uh, right now as we're recording this podcast.
0: Yes, it is. Uh, and Although it, it, apparently it's going much more quickly than what they had originally planned. They thought it was going to take a th- it was going to be a three month trial. But apparently they're moving through witnesses much more quickly than yeah. uh, they mm-hmm. had uh, previously thought. And uh, and. There were thousands of documents involved in this, not just the video.
2: Uh, right, right. Uh, WikiLeaks ended up publishing over 250,000 documents for Manning. He had downloaded all of these diplomatic cables while he was at an uh, Iraq army outpost between November 2009 and April 2010, Um, reportedly having burned them to a CDR labeled Lady Gaga mm-hmm. and told a told a hacker friend that he had them. The hacker turned him in. And
0: yeah, apparently that hacker has since felt a great deal of um, conflict about that act. Uh, the charge, the, the main charge against Bradley Manning is that he knowingly gave intelligence to the enemy through indirect means. And uh,
2: because be, uh, before he was arrested and, and uh, put on, you know, put on trial, he had obviously leaked these documents, too. WikiLeaks.
0: Right. And so uh, uh, in the trial, I can say this because this was reported very recently as of the recording of this podcast. Uh, The defense called the senior intelligence or one senior intelligence analyst from Manning's unit. Uh, Her name is Casey Fulton. And Fulton said that the unit received no specific warning about sites visited by Al Qaeda. She did say that Al Qaeda would visit sites like Facebook or Google or even Google Maps to gather information. But she did not mention WikiLeaks among them. And the defense's case is saying that uh, that there so this was...
2: information went directly to...
0: Right. Well, that Al-Qaeda was not using WikiLeaks specifically to gather information, that that was not Manning's intent. And in fact, the judge in the case has said that the prosecution has to show that Manning had actual knowledge, that he was actually giving intelligence to the enemy through a third party, an intermediary, or in some other indirect way, and that the soldier must have had quote, a general evil intent, unquote, and to have known he was dealing directly or indirectly with an enemy of the United States in order for this particular charge to hold. Now, keep in mind, that's one charge out of all the the trial. So uh, but it it sounds to me that it's a it's a really tough case to make, you know, to prove the intent part specifically. But um, proving,
2: proving intent is one of those things that's. Uh... Basically impossible. Yeah. So, but
0: doesn't mean <laughs> that people don't do it. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> or don't don't uh, achieve it. Uh, now to say that also point out that this is a military trial. It's different from other trials in the United States. Typically in the United States you have a trial with a, 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 a in front of a jury of your peers. Mm-hmm. But in this case it is a judge that is overseeing the case and her word is final. Yes. Uh, at least, in, um, unless you go through an appeals process, but.
2: And you do not have exactly the same, the same rights as you would as a normal citizen in a court of law.
0: So getting back but to, to WikiLeaks, uh, back in, uh, uh, July 25th of 2010, so, so Bradley Manning had been arrested by this point. Three news organizations released separate accounts of the war logs gathered from WikiLeaks regarding the war in Afghanistan. And in August 2010, uh, that's when another big controversial event in the history of WikiLeaks in general and Julian Assange in particular happens, uh, two former employees of WikiLeaks filed rape charges against Julian Assange. And Assange has essentially spent the rest of his life from that point, evading any uh, extradition to Sweden to stand trial for this.
2: Oh, right, right. These charges were brought up in Sweden. Um, the, the two women who have brought up the charges, their names have not been revealed to the press. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, in Sweden, there are laws about using using condoms. If partner tells you to use one and you do not, then you can be brought up on what is called a rape charge and and the technical definition, I shall leave up to other political parties.
0: Yeah. Hey guys, it's Jonathan. Uh, I got to run out and take a quick WikiLeaks. So we're going to take a break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your
1: podcasts. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast Straightforward, inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a guggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Limited availability in select areas. Visit AT&T.com/hypergig for details.
0: At any rate, uh, he has been fighting extradition since then, and and at this point, he's actually. Um, been a, uh, a, granted asylum from, uh, by Ecuador. Ecuador has granted Assange asylum. Really? I'll huh. tell a little more about that when we get a little further down. But yeah, <laughs> that
2: whole, right, um, that ahead. whole
0: drama is a story in of itself. Mm-hmm. But because again, it's so hard to get to the truth of the matter. There's just, we actually talked about doing an episode just about Julian Assange, but instead of uh, about WikiLeaks. But the more we looked into it, the more we realized that this, there's no way to verify half the information that's out there.
2: Right, uh, you know, mo- as as I said at the beginning of the episode, all of the information about Julian Assange comes from either Assange himself mm-hmm. um or from very close personal ex-compatriots who are pretty angry at him.
0: Right. So there there are a lot of biases and, there. And and
2: neither of those sources are really mm, necessarily
0: reliable. Correct. So the uh in July 25th 2010 you had the uh the the Afghanistan reports released. Now, that was one third of three big blocks of information that were going to be released uh, that year. The other two were about uh, the Iraqi war, which that information came out in October 2010. And then there was uh, a huge block of classified U.S. diplomatic cables. And a cable is essentially a message. So these were all these thousands and thousands of diplomatic messages that came out in November 2010. That was the trifecta of big, big bombshell uh, releases that came out in 2010 that really established what WikiLeaks was all about.
2: I think I think those in November were the ones uh, specifically from Manning.
0: Yeah, yeah. And then in September 2010, a little bit earlier, that's when Daniel Domscheitberg, Left WikiLeaks. Right,
2: that's when he walked. He had joined in 2008 and had become, um, sort of Assange's right hand man.
0: Yeah, he was kind of a, he was specifically a spokesperson for WikiLeaks in Europe, mainly in Germany. And, um, he had a major falling out with Assange to the point where it went from he and Assange sharing the same ideals to both of them demonizing one another whenever they had the opportunity to speak to the media.
2: And they were roommates somewhere in between there. Yeah, so. this,
0: this is like talking about that band you used to love and then they broke up and now no one has anything good to say about each other multiplied by about a billion.
2: Right. Later later on, um, he would publish a, a book called Inside WikiLeaks, My Time with Julian Assange at the world's most dangerous website.
0: Yeah, he was and not particularly complimentary of Assange in that book. No. Or in any of his interviews. He left to try and... And uh, his, his goal was to found a competing leak site. He felt that WikiLeaks had lost sight of its ideals, that it was not following. It was not behaving in a way that, again, was aligned with its ideals. Perhaps he felt that it was more sensationalized, the kind of way that we've been talking about how, you know, that, that's always been my personal impression. But, again, that's a personal impression. Um, so he wanted to found a company called OpenLeaks, that would be essentially a competitor to WikiLeaks, uh, and he wanted it to be more transparent than WikiLeaks was. Uh, so he didn't want to have these kind of uh, deals with various news organizations where it was almost exclusive, like a partnership saying, hey, I'm going to give you this information and then you can run it and you know, we'll, we'll have this buddy-buddy relationship. Just link back to my site. Make sure you do that. If you link back to my site, we're all good. He didn't want to do any of that. But eventually, he ended up changing his tune uh, for Open Leaks because it just didn't go didn't over so well. Yeah. Well, part of it was that when he left, one of the things he did was he copied about 3,500 files and then deleted them from WikiLeaks's database. And he left with those 3,500 files. Depending upon whom you ask, he was either trying to partially sabotage WikiLeaks and establish OpenLeaks by getting a jump start with these 3,500 files, or, from his point of view, he felt that what WikiLeaks was doing was irresponsible and endangering the information that was within these 3,500 files, and he was only copying it so that that information would remain safe until such time that he could return those files to WikiLeaks. This is why this gets really complicated because people get, you know, they get a little irritated at each other. <laughs> and yes. then they, they act out a bit. So um anyway, OpenLeaks never really took off. It ended up sort of transforming into more of a site that's designed to teach other people how to set up sites that uh that can accept and publish leaked material. So it really did change quite a bit. So then we had October and November where those other big releases came out. In 2011, that's when WikiLeaks was hit by a pretty hard blow, and it didn't have anything to do with a lawsuit. This was a blockade, a financial blockade. This was when several major financial companies, uh, banks and credit card companies, all decided to end any transfer of funds toward WikiLeaks, WikiLeaks existed solely upon uh, uh, submissions of of monetary donations to the site. You know, people were donating money in order for WikiLeaks to keep going. This was essentially all those methods of transmission saying we are no longer allowing payments to go to WikiLeaks. So even if you want to donate, there was no uh, route for you to go.
2: Right, right. Right. Um...
0: It actually got to a point where Assange said that WikiLeaks had burned through 95 percent of its assets uh, and and that it wasn't able to really regenerate them in any meaningful way because this blockade was preventing payments to go to WikiLeaks.
2: Absolutely. And this was also going on at the same time that, um, or, or a little bit before this. Uh, uh, servers had started withdrawing their services from WikiLeaks. Uh, Amazon dumped them. Uh, every DNS...
0: Uh, had terminated their service. Right. It, it got to a point where, you know, you could still get there. Uh, it was, you know, they, they would have work around so that people could still get to uh, to WikiLeaks. But it was a lot of that, that support was going away. And, you know, there were theories on all sides of this as well, saying that it was a conspiracy that, these companies had been pressured by various governments around the world to end any support so that way WikiLeaks would essentially kind of starve to death. That no one would be able to get there, that it would no one would be able to financially support it, and that it would just go away. And then, hey, no more problems with all this leaked information because no one has any place for this leaked information to go. Sure. So uh, whether or not that's true, or if it was just the company saying, you know, this is something that is going to cause us problems, and we just don't want to be a part of it, and they were independently com- be coming to that decision, I don't know. I guess if there was a leak about it, we'd find out. This uh, was
2: this was also around the same time that um, that they had published in in September of t- two thousand eleven. They had published over uh, two hundred fifty one thousand cables that did not contain redactions, which means that um that the sources of this information and uh, in some places, uh, victims names and et cetera, had not been blacked out.
0: Yeah. In other words, there were names of individuals within these cables that someone who is reading over this could then target uh, either politically or literally target these these folks that are mentioned in these cables. And so there, were, there was a lot of criticism leveled against WikiLeaks and against Assange, saying that it was being irresponsible and endangering people's lives. Uh, Assange has not been the most um, compassionate person in regards to this. He's often said that uh, his goal is to save innocent lives, but if it endangers a few people because of the information that's revealed in these in these cables, then that's you know that's acceptable. I'm paraphrasing that's not exactly what he said, but it's it's more or less the message that has that been it's given.
2: collateral. Murder.
0: Yeah, it's yeah. That's the problem. Is that Lauren seems to feel that this might be a little touch hypocritical, considering the uh, the criticisms that WikiLeaks has levied against uh, you know governments and corporations. That WikiLeaks itself seems to be engaging in the same sort of cavalier behavior towards people's safety.
2: And, and, and to be fair, it is absolutely not a parallel to compare um, uh, putting putting a source in hypothetical danger of persecution versus an Apache pilot killing a child in, right. in a car. Right. That's that's different.
0: Yeah, that's the obviously very different things. But it does seem to suggest that there's a little bit of hypocrisy going on
2: right. i don't
0: disagree with lauren is what i'm saying <laughs> um,
2: But 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 that's but, but that is that is my personal opinion and yeah. uh, and i apologize a little bit for injecting it um this this move did uh did create a great rift between wikileaks and um several of those newspapers uh or or reporting organizations that we had been talking about them uh being in cahoots with earlier uh, the guardian the new york times um, a, a bunch of papers around the yeah, world.
0: Yeah, Der Spiegel was another one. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it was actually, uh, and, and the way that Assange was handling the relationship between WikiLeaks and these news organizations was starting to cheese them off. Like, The Guardian had certain expectations, The New York Times had certain expectations, uh, and The Guardian had felt that The New York Times was going to be able to report on certain things, which The Guardian actually wanted to have happen because Again, the Guardians in the UK and the secrecy laws are such that there were there were these partnerships between The Guardian and New York Times where New York Times could publish some stuff that would possibly get The Guardian into trouble, but would still benefit The Guardian in some way. So it was this this kind of weird relationship that was going on. But then uh, Assange essentially got ticked off at The New York Times for the way that the New York Times handled its information, because one thing that the New York Times would do is approach the government and say, hey, we receive these cables and we plan on running with a story, but we're letting you know ahead of time. Whereas in the U.K., that's generally not done. Generally in the U.K., they run the story. So that put pressure on The Guardian. It also put pressure on Assange. And then Assange was apparently very much upset about this and wanted to sever the relationship with The New York Times. But The Guardian still wanted this relationship with The New York Times. If this is starting to sound like the relationships in middle school drama club, that's kind of what it comes out to being, except the stakes are obviously way higher.
2: Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, they, the, the, the newspapers, five, five global newspapers wound up putting out a joint statement that said, um, we deplore the decision of WikiLeaks to publish the unredacted state. Department cables, which may put sources at risk. The decision to publish by Julian Assange was his and his alone.
0: Right. Yeah, because they all had the policy of actually going through and very carefully uh, redacting any identifiable information to protect sources and to protect people who could potentially become a victim of some agency. And, uh, and, you know, that was an important part of their process to the point where you had people, entire departments in charge of reviewing every single cable to make certain that all the stuff they publish was going to be safe. And so for this move to happen on WikiLeaks and meant that a lot of that work was just nullified. And obviously that is a good reason to become upset. Well, uh, once you get into about May, 2012, so Assange had been fighting extradition, uh, uh, attempts and he had been living in London while Sweden authorities were trying to extradite mm-hmm. him to Sweden. He had, uh, he had
2: spent about a week in jail in December of 2010 on, uh, on those, um, extradition charges. Yeah.
0: And he had, uh, before being released on bail, been in and out of court trying to, uh, appeal extradition. And, uh, by May, 2012, the British Supreme Court, it had gone all the way up to the British Supreme Court said, no, we're not going to prevent your extradition. You are going to have to go to Sweden to stand trial. That's when Assange then started to appeal to Ecuador, the embassy in the UK, and actually saying, will you grant me asylum? And, um, it was at a point where he was in the, he was staying in the embassy. He had not officially been granted asylum by Ecuador. And then there was going to be apparently a raid on the Ecuador, uh, embassy in order to get Assange out. And that's when Ecuador said, we're giving you asylum. So it's almost, it's possible that that, that raid was the precipitating. Yeah, that was exactly the moment where they, Ecuador said, you know, we weren't going to, but now we totally are. Because now it's political. Mm -hmm. So still very complicated issue. Um, and, you know, guilt or innocence aside, it's, it's one of those stories that is really complicated and tough to, to kind of unwind and follow. Uh, so anyway, WikiLeaks is still still a thing, it's still around. It's still, you know, it accepts leaked information. Uh, it has uncovered lots of stories, not just with governments, but like we said, with corporations, uh, some of which have caused uh, newspapers to get into trouble for running the stories. Things like, you know, major corporations that may have fallen short on promises for doing things like cleaning up a gasoline spill. There was a specific example of that. Um, and, and it continues to fulfill that role. Some argue that um, it's even possible that the whole Assange story could just be uh, a smoke and mirrors for WikiLeaks to continue doing what it does without having to worry about so much focus because there's this fall guy oh, right, who's getting. Right, right. Yeah,
2: you've got this very flashbang kind of person over here who's going, like, Look at me, extradition charges. Yeah.
0: Derp, derp, and then and they can yeah. continue doing their, their, their political work. Political work, right. Mm-hmm. So uh, I doubt that anything is that planned out because uh, life is just complicated and messy and it's tough to ever have a plan that, like, James Bondish. I would, ever be, I would work. be very impressed. But but it you know it, it's possible. It's, it's certainly a possibility. It, I'm yeah. not, you know if if they did do that then it's it's the stuff of movie legend. Speaking of movie legends, there is a <laughs> film being made. Well, there's uh, there, there,
2: there are two films that that have uh, been um, in production recently. One is a documentary that was just released. Right. I believe yeah. um, uh, uh, Alex uh, Gibney's "We Steal Secrets."
0: Right, and that one focused both on Assange and on Manning. Correct. And, uh, and sort of, uh, it was supposed to be, you know, like a warts and all kind of portrayal. And some people say that his uh, portrayal of Assange does give sort of the warts and all approach. And in fact, I think, you know, Assange definitely did not make that relationship a sweet one because apparently he demanded outright that if Gibney were to talk to Assange, it would cost him a million bucks. And a uh, documentary filmmaker—that's probably not the best way to win that person over to your side.
2: No, no, but, uh, uh, yeah, Assange has come out um, very vocally um, against this documentary. Which and is funny
0: said, because people, other people, have also, on both sides, have come down upon this documentary. Right,
2: right. Uh, and and some some people are proponents of it. One uh, uh, former WikiLeaks employee, in particular, James Ball, um, reported. Reported it being a, a very accurate portrayal, like to the point that it was deja vu right. seeing
0: the film. Now there are some who say that uh, uh, Manning's portrayal was overly sympathetic. That they do, you know, it's hard to say that uh, that it's unjustified because you're talking about uh, one person who may very well have been acting in what he thought was the right way to to expose what he saw as unethical behavior, and there's no you know there's no official way of doing it and any hope of it being addressed and so he went outside the system in order to try and and have this done and that's solve that's, it, yeah. that's kind of the story that's being told there are other people who say it's more complicated than that and that you know it wasn't truly altruistic motivations that had him do what he did but Again, that's a really complicated story. When you're doing a documentary film, you have to simplify things so that you Enough can have to a narrative.
2: Enough fit it into a, yeah, and be so, two hours long and not...
0: Yeah, you know. that, so that was one of the criticisms I saw, was that it made uh, Manning out to be more sympathetic than than the person felt that he should be. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, I think it's really hard to... Say that you can't feel sympathy for someone who's being uh, held for a military trial that doesn't have the same um uh, ju- uh same protections as a criminal or civil case would in a normal court of law, but you know again I don't know again yeah we I don't we, know the motivations we there, yeah. so
2: we don't know the guy don't know all
0: the details so um, uh, I, you know that that'll play out and the judge will come to a decision yeah so uh, uh, the other one is um
2: it's it's a fictional film or, or I mean fictional it's a mm, Biopic, maybe? Yeah, it's got uh,
0: Barnaby Cumberbund in it. <laughs> Benedict Cumberbatch. Right, right. I'm sorry. <laughs> John Harrison. It's got John Harrison in it.
2: <laughs> um, this, this film is called The Fifth Estate. It's being directed by Bill Condon, um, and uh, it is slated to be released on October 11th of 2013. Yep. Um, and uh, Cumberbatch has said that Assange directly asked him to not do the film, um, calling it a massive propaganda attack.
0: Yeah, that maybe it is. I haven't seen it. Don't know. We'll have to wait. Yeah. In, yeah. October if you, and find if, out. If, if,
2: but if you want to see some really cool pictures of Benedict Cumberbatch looking intense with uh, uh,
0: bleach, with bleached, bleached hair, bleached hair, yeah. um,
2: those are on the Internet.
0: And that wraps up this episode, this classic episode of Tech Stuff, the WikiLeaks story. Like I said, we probably need to go back and revisit this one A lot has happened with WikiLeaks, a lot of ups and downs with that story. So I'll probably do a follow-up, maybe a full redo, we'll see. But if you guys have suggestions for topics I should cover on Tech Stuff, reach out to me on Facebook or Twitter. The handle at both is TechStuffHSW and I'll talk to you again really soon.